The old lady put her bloody saw down so she could rest. She lit a cigarette and asked which podcast I like best. Well, my favorite podcast is Sometimes Dead is Better. Dead is Better. Sometimes Dead is Better. Hello and welcome to Sometimes Dead is Better. And it's me, Kristen. And me, Chris. Were there any special events or anything that you recently have gone to that may be of interest to our podcast listeners? I had so much fun at a horror convention called Mad Monster when they came here to Atlanta. And this was my first horror convention I've gone to. I went with my friend Boba. That's her derby name, if you're, that sounds weird. Her name's Boba Threat. I think I met her in a, when she came to Birmingham, didn't I? You did. Good. And we both love horror. And so we went together. She dressed as Tatum from Scream. She looked amazing. And it was kind of overwhelming because there's just like, there's just like Carl Weathers just sitting there at a table. Like Creed is just sitting there. Oh, see. And Lance Hendrickson was there. That's what I was I almost. Think he was just there for money. Yeah. Well, I, I guess promoting is the wrong word. I was thinking about, well, I guess he was in Predator. I'm trying to think of horror movies that he was in. Predator's probably oh, the wasn't big he one. in The Mandalorian? Yeah, but that's not really horror. Isn't it a horror convention? Yeah, but I guess you can kind of be known for anything and people will come as long as you have a horror credit, I guess. Right. But anyway, so um, I was, you were telling me who I was going to be there and I got really excited. You told me that you were just a few feet away from Lance Henriksen, which that would make yes. me get weak in the knees. <laughs> it made me so nervous. And it, he, there was nobody at his table. He had a weird setup like at the very front of the convention. Like everybody else was all the way through this one room. And then all the way at the back of this other huge room. But he was up there by himself. I don't know if he needed to be close to the bathrooms or what. I mean, <laughs> or no why one, he was there. You mean no one was going to see him? Not when I was there. That is crazy. I mean. I know. Because, you know, Frank Black and Aliens and Pumpkinhead and the Terminator. And so that's why I feel extra stupid because I got too nervous. Because you can just go up and talk to them and say hi. If you want to get like an autograph or a selfie, that's like an extra cost. And you have to go get cash out for that. I didn't have cash. So I just kind of like, I took an awkward video of him and then I got nervous. And then I was like, shit, he's 83. Am I going to be able to see him again? Uh So hopefully he comes to another convention because I really want to talk to him. I mean, it was very intimidating. I can see him being intimidating now that I think about it. Um, I mean. But then I posted a video on TikTok about it and someone said that how sweet he is. And that she's met him at conventions before. So now I'm like, okay, I can do it next time. And then so they had their main draw was a lot of the Scream cast. So they had Nev Campbell, Jamie Kennedy, Skeet Ulrich, and Matthew Lillard. And so we paid for a photo op with Matthew Lillard because he's still, I rewatch Scream, you know, every once in a while. And he is just so funny in that. He's so good. And then I watched Five Nights at Freddy's and I'm back on this big Matthew Lillard kick like I think a lot of America is, which I'm very thankful for. How close did you get to Nev Campbell? Oh, I walked right by her. And I could have gotten in line and like talked to her. But again, it made me nervous. I do wish I would have also paid for the photo op with Nev. Nev Campbell was gorgeous. And she was so kind and so sweet. Because also there was a panel where we got to ask questions to all four of those actors. Plus the stunt guy, Lee Waddell, who plays Ghostface. He does? And they were so kind. And so thoughtful with their answers. It's made me cry. 
like Skeet like got into the audience. He was like rubbing people's backs as they were talking and Matthew was getting in there and they were hilarious and Jamie Kennedy was so funny. So it was really special. I had a really good time. Did you say Lee Wanell plays Ghostface? Lee Waddell. Waddell. Okay. Not, not. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Confusing. Did Nev Campbell say anything about the fact that the sort of controversy with her not being asked back for Scream or the anything like that, or it did that not come up? No one asked her specifically. I have seen other interviews where she did say they didn't offer her enough money. She's very transparent about it. Yeah. But they did ask Matthew Lillard if he wanted to be in the Scream movies. And Matthew Lillard said, yes, I want to be in them. The writers know I want to be in them. But unfortunately, in Hollywood, there's like 10 people in charge. So it's not up to me. Well, so what is he saying? There's some possibility that he's his character's still alive or something? Or would he play someone else? Or? Yes. Huh. I think he thinks his character's still alive. I mean... Actually, he did say that. He said Stu survives. Actually, now I remember. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, there you go. That would be, I mean, that would be a pretty cool twist for one of the movies. I mean, I'm surprised they haven't done that. Yeah, because it was the majority of people were there to see him, which was pretty cool. So because we were all in this one room, right? And they're like, who's here to see Jamie Kennedy? And literally two people raised their hand. And then like, who's here to see Skeet? Maybe 10 people. Maybe about a third of those people left were for Nev. Everybody else was for Matthew. And so we're all standing there in this little huddled little room. And I am staring at the back wall. And Matthew Lillard just walks into the back of the room. Nobody else sees him. It's just me. And I'm just like, what's happening? What's happening? He just comes in and says hello to everybody. He has a camera and he's taking photos of us. And he just comes in and says hello. He's so sweet. He didn't have to do that. No. That's when we're waiting to get our pictures with him. You know? He probably thinks it's fun. He was so happy. Um, yeah. Did anybody ask him about Twin Peaks season three? They didn't. Oh. I, I'm sorry. And I didn't know how much we should ask. I didn't ask a question, but I was wondering, like, do they want to keep it to scream questions? Because I did have other questions about, I don't remember what I, I was thinking I wanted to ask, but it wasn't related to scream. Scooby-Doo. So I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's so funny about that is that Boba is 10 years younger than me. So we have this bit of a disconnect, you know? How you kind of have sometimes with younger friends or older friends or like my husband who's seven years older than me. And sometimes we just completely miss things. And so she was very excited because of the Scooby-Doo movie. I told her I'd never seen it. And she was shocked. Shocked. Yeah. I I said, I'm sorry. I just that passed over. That wasn't a time when I was we watched something like that. Yeah. We were easily. We were were probably watching Pet Cemetery. Yeah. Speaking of, I did see the new Pet Cemetery Bloodlines movie. Have you watched that? No. Okay. I mean, is it we bad? Don't have, it's so bad. <laughs> I almost, I don't even want to disparage it. So you can just cut all this, but good God. What a just, I mean, it almost ain't, it kind of made me mad. David Duchovny was good in it. I mean, he's wasted. Like, how do you make something so bad? It just could have been any other movie. They just missed the complete point of what the Pet Cemetery story is, which is how scary or fucked up it would be to do that to your own family or what would you do to bring someone back the, these movies start the new movie starts the the people have already been brought back so it's just like a zombie movie and there's like nothing about oh. that decision like that movie in the book and even the sequel the first one it's all about like those decisions that's what's scary and then of course all the crazy horror that comes out of that semi-interesting uh, like native american sort of vibe that you know a lot of the characters in there are native american and you sense there's some idea there like it's the kernel of an idea to maybe take back the um wait what was it called i be indian bear ground 
trope. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which we'll talk about in this episode. Yeah. Oh, I feel like maybe there was something there, but it was just like it's just like a bunch of. I mean, I, I was bored about halfway through it, and once I realized it was just. That's too bad. Yeah. Oh, and I do also need to tell you that Kiefer Sutherland is going to be at the Mad Monster in Charlotte, North Carolina in February. Okay. And I think I definitely am going to go. And this is just a photo op. You go in and you take a picture and you go. But I still think it would really be really cool. He would love you. <laughs> yeah. Did you, did you know when like the 80s, like I was looking up like the Cassie Young Guns. Yes, you do. He was like 18 years old when he met Young Guns. <laughs> Like, if you look that at that movie, crazy. it looks like he's 30. That's just, you know, the 80s, they just, you know, they lived hard, I guess. But, I mean, the Brat Pack. But, but yes, I would like to meet Kiefer. That's another thing that was funny with my friend Boba is that she didn't know who Kiefer Sutherland was. What? They had to <laughs> catch her up. And then she didn't. She never heard of the show 24. She kind of knew what it was about. And then I tried to explain it to her. I was like, this sounds bad, doesn't it? I was like, but I promise you it's good. That is, de- I can definitely see that being co- like a generational thing. That, I mean, that's probably like people our age not really like kind of knowing like say what like, L.A. law was, but you know, just not being yeah of an age to watch it. I mean, I don't know what what was the last thing that Kiefer Sutherland really did. Now that I think about it, I guess he's kind of been out of the spotlight for a while. Nothing against Kiefer. I don't Please know. don't come after us. You're doing fine. <laughs> well, we'll ask him in February. What you been doing, man? <laughs> then he jumps through a Christmas tree. <laughs> Do you? you know, <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember that movie? Oh yeah. You know who else will be there? Jason Patrick. And also the guy who plays the saxophone with his shirt off will I'm also so be there. at the convention. Yeah. I, I think I saw maybe <laughs> Alex Winters there too from Bill and Ted or the Lost Boys. Yes. Yeah. I'm totally there. I will have plenty of Lost Boy questions that we can show them or, I don't know, somehow <laughs> give them a, a USB thing with their Lost Boys podcast <laughs> or something. Is that a thing? There is a Lost Boys sweatshirt that I kept seeing on TikTok that I wanted. I love TikTok. Kristen has been doing a great job with the uh, sometimes dead TikTok. And there's some funny stuff on there and some informative stuff on there. And at some point, it became just a fall of the House of Usher TikTok. That's, that's <laughs> yeah, fun, too. That's <laughs> All right. So, but what are we talking about today? We're going back in time a little bit. Yeah. We're going back. Oh my, oh, my gosh. This is crazy. This is 1979, the same year. That Madeline and Roderick Usher made that deal. Oh, yes, yeah. With the Raven. Yeah. So that was going on as this was going on. Crazy, yeah. All right, so we are doing the 1979 version of the Amityville Horror. Now, there was also a 2005 with Ryan Reynolds and Melissa George. Have you seen Have that Have you ever one? seen that one? Have you ever no. seen that one? <laughs> <laughs> no, I've actually been dying to watch it I, uh, because every time I look at the uh, the steals they always show Ryan Reynolds with an axe and his shirt off and like well that looks kind of entertaining but um yeah he's got a big beard got a big beard it was a, a big hit do you remember Melissa George why actor? does that name sound familiar apparently not because she was kind of like almost gonna be like the next big thing like she was on she was in a lot of movies she was in that movie um Triangle which was a good which is a great movie and she was in Grey's Anatomy and then all of a sudden she kind of just like went away. No, I, I, the name does sound familiar, but I, I couldn't place her. I am going to watch that movie. Um, but um, I've never seen this movie until you suggested we do it for the podcast. It is quite a ride. I'll say that. Um, I do like it. But I just I, this is a whole universe that I was like unfamiliar with. I knew the basic story. But I had no idea that this franchise is so insane. Like there's hundreds of these movies. 
Yes. I did not realize it went as far as it did either until I looked it up. I was like, oh, I know there was a remake. And then in 2017, there was another one. There's Jennifer one in Jason space. Lee called <laughs> Amityville Horror Awakening. There is. Um, so what That's happened crazy. was because because it's based on a true story, it's public domain. Well, we'll get into that. It's based on a true story, Kristen, meaning that <laughs> someone said it happened at one point. So for whatever reason, like you know, unlike say your typical franchising, your Freddy Krueger, whatever, it's completely in the public domain. So pretty much anybody can make a movie about it. There's no, you know intellectual property to worry about or you know that type of thing no no trademarks or anything to get you in trouble so people just every every year or so especially back in the 80s apparently they would just someone's like let's fire it up and they would even if they weren't (laughs) related to the people making the original movies just some you know random movie company would do like amityville 1988 or you know amityville there's literally one in space i looked it up i am gonna have a hard time not talking about like the original murders that happened, plus what happened after that with the Lutz family. So I want to do that separately. I want to I want to try to talk about the movie as just a movie. Yeah. But so it's 1979. It's kind of interesting. I was looking at like where it is in the like the pantheon of horror movies, and so The Shining came out in 1980. Yeah, this is it's very similar to The Shining in a way. Yeah, but the, so The Shining book came out in 1977. And there is a very shining scene in this, an axe and a door. Yeah. And also just the general sort of Jack Torrance vibe that um, Chris, that um, I keep wanting to say he's Chris Christopherson. He's not. He's, he's, um, <laughs> he's not. James Berlin. But in the Shining book, Jack Torrance uses a mallet and not an axe. So was there any part of this that Stanley Kubrick saw and thought, let's use an axe instead? Probably not. But I don't know. I thought that was interesting because you watch this movie and you probably assume, oh, they ripped that off of The Shining. But then when you learn that this was made before The Shining was filmed, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Kubrick was probably already making The Shining even when this was being made because he takes, you know, forever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I hadn't thought about that. But the timing is interesting. I think Kubrick probably just thought, Mallet's stupid. I'm going to do an accent. That was probably it. Well, another movie kind of similar to this is Poltergeist, which came out in 1982. It's not that much long longer after. Poltergeist is not as like intense. Like got Steven Spielberg behind there, so it's a little more. I mean, it's still scary as hell, but it's, it's a little different vibe. You know what I mean? Yeah. So this movie is in, uh, interesting because it's it's before most of the slasher movies. Like, I mean, Halloween had already come out, but it's before like all the Friday Thirteenths, the Nightmare on Elm Streets. It's still kind of the what I would call the early. I mean, obviously there were a lot of horror movies already, but. You know, there's still not what I would call um, a lot of the tropes hadn't quite been established. There's not like a lot of cliche. Like this movie is very probably foundational in setting out, you know, a lot of the tropes that are now in every other horror movie, particularly in anything to do with hauntings or haunted houses or ghosts. I mean, there's even like the black yeah, cat about scene. a house movie, right? Oh, definitely a house movie, yeah. So some of the things <laughs> that when I watched it, you know, that didn't quite maybe grip me as much as they should have. I don't really fault the movie for it. It's just because I've seen every other iteration of this that I've not copying this, but, you know, like, you know, The Conjuring did this 40 years later, probably did a little bit better. But that's not the Amityville Horror's fault, because if not for the Amityville Horror, there probably would be no Conjuring. Yeah. And they both do involve Ed and Lorraine Warren, who uh, we'll get into them yeah. a little later. Yeah, on Kristen's hit list. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I guess all that's to say is to introduce this idea that, you know, I didn't like love this movie. I really enjoyed it. I, I mean, I suspect it's probably, you know, much better than I give it credit for only because I, I wish I'd seen it when I was younger, I guess. Uh, I've seen it. I saw it too late in life. I've seen every other movie that's kind of either ripped it off or been influenced by it. And there, there is a certain production quality to it that doesn't quite match up <laughs> to these later efforts. Well, I have to say that after rewatching it and then getting into the history of the actual murder that happened and then the Lutzes moving in and them saying that this was haunted and how that affects what people thought about the actual murders that happened, it all kind of just didn't sit right with me. And I got very angry. <laughs> so, okay. so we'll talk about that. <laughs> a good podcast. And it was like, there's so much. It's like, choose lane you know it's just are we go, are we going down like that's a catholic priest exorcism yeah exactly or yeah. is it there's a lot burial ground there's a lot is there of salem witches yeah, it, yeah you're, that's exactly right that's one of the things that kind of not bothered me but it's like oh we're just in a different movie now <laughs> and that's why when i think about george and kathy lutz and when they decide to make all make all this shit up they were just like hey what if we said oil came out of the toilets and the walls bled and oh let's just say i saw a pig with eyes like they just were making shit up i don't know about ghosts i've never had any kind of paranormal experience but i do like a, a podcast called radio rental people go on and tell their creepy stories and some of them really freak me out and they do seem genuine and real but it's like subtle hauntings you know what i mean if there is a ghost it's not just going to make your walls bleed and blow your doors off. And I talk about in this movie how demons are smart. It's like, these demons aren't smart. <laughs> They're trying to break the kids' fingers? Why? Anyway, okay, now I'm well, already going mean, off. Yeah, but... <laughs> well, I mean, I, I take everything that happens in the movie at, at face value. So I did Google and Wikipedia my heart out about what actually, you know, the real story. And pretty quickly came to the same conclusions you did, <laughs> which, you know, seems to be well documented that I guess it was based on more or less a hoax. Right. But, but you know, yeah. way more about well, it. We than can I talk do. about that a little later. Yeah. All right. So this movie was directed by Stuart Rosenberg, who did a lot of TV, a lot of Twilight Zones. Yeah. There's definitely back to Hitchcock. Yeah. And you know, that, that to me, that explains a little bit of the, some of it does feel like almost like a TV miniseries or something like, you know, yeah, it does. You know, the movie opens with this this recreation of the murders in a very tasteful, you know, just not exploitive <laughs> at all, you know, scene. What did you think about that? I mean, again, this kind of makes I wish this is the type of thing where I wish I'd seen it when I was younger and more naive. And you know, now you kind of see that and you think, well, that's just a bit out of taste. I mean, even though you're watching a horror movie. But I mean, what did you think? Oh, it did seem very 70s. But then like when also when you do learn about the real murders, I mean, they were pretty horrific so i also kind of understand them wanting to thinking that they should make them seem realistic but i don't know i mean even like in the real story like what when they were bringing the children out one of the kids like fell off the gurney like it was it was intense maybe i kind of appreciate it in the sense that well they probably wouldn't do that now if anything i think the movie now well i guess we could find out if we watch the remake but i watched the beginning of the remake because like i said it started okay right after the other it's the same thing only it's only it looks more realistic. Oh. Like it's not. So they didn't learn anything. Well, I say now, <laughs> even that was probably what fifteen years ago. So 
So uh, maybe yeah, now almost, they wouldn't do it again. 20. I, I guess what I was thinking, like, you know, it seems like they would start it with a family moving in. And then later you would learn that these murders had happened. Presented almost like the cutaways when you're watching like an episode of Dateline. You know, when they go the Yes, exactly. When they go the dramatization part. That's what it felt yes, like. Yes, it's like yeah. the reenactments and it's like the people that are getting paid like $35 for the day <laughs> yeah. are the reenactors. Yeah. It's not particularly scary. Yes. It's it's a bit upsetting, but, you know, it's just so sort of schlocky, I guess. But I kind of like it. You know, it's like, cool. Okay, 1979, you go, girl. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, they filmed that show. What's one of those shows? It's either like Snap or one of those true crime shows. They film it in Tennessee. And so when I look on the, like the actors access where I submit myself for like auditions, there's always, always auditions for those reenactment shows. And then like they have a picture of the original person. So you can see like if you're similar enough. And I've submitted to a few really? because I would still do that, oh, even though it's sure, yeah. cheesy as hell. It sometimes like have to be OK with blood and like choreographed violence. So I'm like, all right, let's do it. Yeah. I already feel like I'm criticizing this movie or shitting. I'm really not. I, I'm, you know, I'm three minutes into it. I've Chris, no- it's okay because I feel like shitting on it too. So, and look, if you love well, this it's, movie, it's, it's, it's probably. It's precious. <laughs> let's talk about James Brolin and um, Margot Kidder. I mean. Oh, that'll bring things up. How sweet are they? What a couple. I mean, first of all. They look fantastic. Margot's Alphas in this movie. And I, I, I don't think, you know, before Superman, I haven't seen much of her in other movies. I know she did a lot of TV stuff in the 80s. And then she had that unfortunate, you know, sort of mental health uh, episode. And that's kind of the last people seem to have heard of from her. But this is kind of one of the only other things that I feel like I've seen her in outside Superman. I'm so used to her as Lois Lane. And I was just yeah. delighted by her. Like, you know, she's so, first of all, she's beautiful. She's funny. Um, and I just love, she reminds me of my friend Michael's wife. She looks a lot like her, um, a friend of Michael's wife, Rachel. So shout out Rachel for watching this. <laughs> but her outfits alone are, you know, even when she's just going to the grocery store, she's wearing like this you know, necktie with like a plaid skirt and like a white blazer. Oh, she's so cute. Yeah. Um, she has like ribbons in her hair. Yeah. Like every choice is just like stunning. And, and you know, that, that, you know, it's just sort of peak 70s fashion. I love her so much. And so if there's younger people listening, so James Brolin is the main star of this. And his son is Josh Brolin, who everyone probably knows from the Avengers movies and everything, which is really interesting. And James Brolin is married to Barbara Streisand. But anyway, that's a very interesting couple. Was he married to Barbara Streisand at the time of this movie, Dina? Oh, I don't know. That's why I imagine Barbara Streisand on the set of the Amityville (laughs) (laughs) World. Um, so anyway, James Brolin and, and um, Margot Kidder, his name, I believe, is George and her name is, I want to say Karen. No, George and Kathy. Kathy. Lutz. That's the name of the oh. real people who moved into the house. And the story is pretty much the same. She already had kids and then they got married. He was their stepdad. Moving into this house that at its time was only $80,000, they say. But if I looked it up, that'd be $330,000 a day. So it's not super cheap um but it's a murder house it was already out of their price range and they did know about the murders it wasn't anything about like you know kind of like in poltergeist whenever he learns that they didn't move the bodies after they built the house or whatever like they are very aware it's even in real life 
it was kind of weird because they asked for the furniture to stay. Like the beds that the people were murdered on were the same beds no, that they kept. <laughs> Later, we think about the hoax. It's like they already were in debt over this house. They were uh, yeah. so desperate. They needed that furniture, I suppose, because they couldn't afford it. And so that just kind of adds on to it, too. Well, my favorite point about that is, you know, later in the movie, and we can just jump around because why not? But, you know, when the money goes missing, you know, the, the ghost that steals the right. money from the caterer. Oh, that's another thing that clearly, we have to add on here. Also, the ghost steals the money. Clearly what, what happened was Mr. Lutz, you know, lost some money. And he's like, oh, the ghost. Uh, yeah, that's And that just made its way to the screenplay writer. Probably just has more to do with them being, you know, just cheats and liars and all. Yeah, yeah. Does the house that they show in the movie, like even with the crazy windows, look like eyes? Is that is that the real Amityville house, or does it look like the real Amityville house? Yes. Good. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and there's these two, you know, windows at top that look like eyes, and I just wonder, like, wow, did is that like a real house, or did they make that for the movie? All right. So yes, yeah, so the the house was eighty thousand dollars in nineteen seventy nine, and it was one twelve Ocean Avenue in Amityville, Long Island. Now, the real house, they actually, it's still there, but they changed the address to 108 mm. Ocean Avenue to see what kept coming. And they did the redo, <laughs> yeah, they did redo the back of the house so that way it doesn't look like the house anymore. Now, the house they used for the movie is in New Jersey, and that actually sold for $1.5 this year. And they just altered the house to look like oh, the, so it looks, the real looks one like it. for okay. the movie. I do um, want to talk about, I think, like, the oddest part of the movie, and it happens early on, and I, it's just so strange to me, is when they're doing the walk through the house with the realtor, and, you know, they're touring the house, and then it goes to these sort of jump flashes to the murders. Yeah, I actually kind of like Yeah, that. I like it, but the way <laughs> it's done is so bizarre. It's like the they go, like, to a freeze frame of like St. Margot Kidder like halfway at the steps. There's like no rhyme or reason to it. They're not even like at the fucking door where like say the kid gets murdered. It's like she's opening a cabinet and then like something happening upstairs. And it's just so it's so, so true. I guess I guess what I'm realizing it was it was probably done by the editor after the fact, not by like the director, because it doesn't really flow with the movie. Uh and it's very jarring. And you're not quite scared by it because you're more thinking about, well, that's a weird cut. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, I have this is a deep cut. Okay. Do you remember on The Sopranos? I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Do you? When, okay, um, all right. The, the episode where yes, Carmela is walking. That's such a right? good thought. I didn't think about that, but that's exactly the same thought. Okay. Um, why don't you explain to the listeners? And like five other people maybe are going to know yes, what we're talking it. about. It's just one particular episode. Where Carmela is walking, and for some reason it like it's almost like a slow mo, and then it like cuts to black. And I remember watching it the first time, and I was like, "What happened?" Even talking to my mom about it, everyone thought did did HBO like malfunction or something. Like it was, it was actually kind of a weird way, similar to what happens in you know the finale. But well, and the house is pretty gross. Like it kind of reminds me of Maddie's house in Malignant. We're talking about how oh, it's like yeah. dark. That poor and realtor. Dirty. She's like, yeah, this is the. <sighs> murder <laughs> i mean it's just like wallpaper tearing down and it's all green and yeah it's not great but margot kidder and josh brolin are so cute like going through the house together they're adorable they're like they're like giggling there's a really cute little scene where he like touches his mustache 
and says like be cool like teasing her about because the, obviously the house is pretty gross and she wants to say something but, but it's a great you know property in a way i mean it's not this nice lake they have a huge lot i mean i mean it's definitely a fixer-upper on the insides but i can see you know a young couple and you know it, it comes up later that he has money problems with his business you know, something's wrong and he's a surveyor or he's a yeah, survey I mean, business they, they established that about three-fourths of the way through the movie <laughs> <laughs> not that's like really important, but yeah, they have money problems. You know, it's major part of sort of the decision making not to leave the house. At the beginning, they have that like Rosemary's yeah. Baby music. That's, yeah, that is it's what kind it of is, like yeah. the singing. By the way, you can, I mean, I do have my Rose, Rosemary Baby notes still queued up if you want to do that at any point. Yeah, we probably should. All right, so they are being adorable. And she says that they should go get a couple of beers and go play outside with the kids, which is, is so cute. While they're outside, a priest comes by because he's going to come by and bless the house they are religious which i thought was interesting can you clear this up for me because like my understanding is that margot kidder is the catholic one and i suppose james brillo makes some comment about him being him converting for her so i suppose he's converting to catholicism for her and that's why when he i guess there's so. a scene where he puts the cross their crucifix on the wall and so I guess that's him like sort of being nice and saying, look, I'm I'm on board. I'm placing the crucifix because that's, you know, not just a Christian symbol. It's, you know, inherently a Catholic symbol. Yeah. But I also noticed he also has like a saint on his dashboard of his. Well, maybe. Band. So did she convert for him? So, then? Yeah, I don't know. Because okay. she's wearing the cross on her on her neck. And I could see that more being that. He would convert for her. Well, he just makes his comment at some point. I, don't, I feel like it's pretty early on where he says something like, I, I converted for you. And he, it's, it's kind of when he's kind of getting a little bit angry. And they kind of drop oh. it. But it's sort of in, in the same scene where he's talking about, you know, you know, I'm trying to get along with your fucking kids. You know, it, it's just sort of show how, he, how much he's kind of given up for her. Okay, so I'm sorry. You were talking about when the priest comes to visit before I rudely interrupted you about the cross. But, <laughs> but no, he just, he just comes right in. And starts getting to town. Well, whatever he thinks he hears he has like laughter or something upstairs. Oh yeah, that's true. So he does follow what we're assuming are the ghost children upstairs, and then it gets a uh, it gets real uh, fly yeah, infested. Quickly, and this all came <laughs> from they what they say. Yeah, actually happened. Like allegedly, a priest said that he came into the house and he heard the words "get out." The door closed. There was flies, which I guess is a bad omen, but it, I don't see why that it just seems like that's more of a really old timey omen of death right because i could see that being i don't know almost like medieval so something just occurred to me the the this the get out get out um sort of sequence which is very creepy not so much the flies but just the sort of disembodied voice and it, it's effective do you think that's where jordan peele got the title get out from because you know he's such a horror aficionado and that apparently is a famous like for its time, it was kind of like a, you know, here's Johnny or, you know, or it was kind of a famous line from the movie for a while. I wonder if that's kind of where he. Well, yeah, so that's a good point. He was definitely a fan of yeah. probably 70s horror and probably he did the remake of The Twilight Zone. So it has nothing thematically to do with his movie, but I, I mean, I can see him sort of playing with that. But yeah, that's a weird scene. So he gets attacked by flies and has sort of a heart attack and. <laughs> And then he just kind of leaves, or do, or do they do they know he? Yeah, no, he he gets in his car and leaves, and then and they don't like, even for know the he rest came. of the movie, yeah, he's tormented. He <laughs> I would bring that up. I was like, hey, I came to your house today, and um, 
Well, he tried, but he couldn't oh, talk right. on the yeah, phone yeah. because the the phone got staticky and then it burned him for good measure. Like all of this is just like so yeah. much. Like if it was just the flies, if it was just the staticky phone, but it's just like there's so much. He gets in a car wreck. <laughs> like, the steering wheel the car stops wreck scene working. Is crazy because like <laughs> I watched that and then I I watched it's it again. Like, I'm like what is this? Like I for, I forgot. I I always forget it's in the movie and I've seen it three times now and it's like. <laughs> It's just one of those things like this is did I did I skip channels? Like what what is this a different movie? But And I remember in this right that in the Naked Gun, did OJ Simpson's character keep getting yeah. injured? And by the end he was like in a wheelchair <laughs> with like a broken off the, arm. Um, the, <laughs> like, the railing of the baseball stadium. Yeah, so you're yeah. saying he's like that character? Yeah, so that's what it, <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And, and we might as well just talk about that whole plot line in in one Phil Swoop as Nate Pargassi was. <laughs> oh, that, that'd be great. Look, yeah, can we just get it over with? Yeah, There's so much. I can much. deal with the scene where Rod Steiger's by himself and, you know, the flies and the get out, you know, fine. It's a little weird how it's done. Well, yeah, let's just talk about Rod Steiger for a second, though. This is a guy who won freaking Academy Awards. I really for what? He won an Academy you know? Award for In the Heat of the Night. He was in On oh. the Waterfront. Oh. And he was also nominated for a movie called The Pawn Broker. So he's like legit. Also, one of the other priests is Murray Hamilton, the mayor from Jaws. From Jaws, yeah. So that was yeah. exciting. And he's, he's giving full-on mayor from Jaws energy in this movie, too. <laughs> and he's like the same character. You know, the, the, the Rod Steiger guy is talking about all the horrible shit that happened, you know, the one time. Well, I guess there's a car wreck, too. And and he's just giving Jaws, mayor of Jaws energy. Just don't we worry about it. We are not closing the beach. And this scene goes on for like 15 minutes or what it feels like. <laughs> With these three characters you just met, I mean, I guess, yeah, you met Ross Tiger, and but, but it, it it's like a, this just dead spot in the middle of the movie, which again I kind of in a weird way admire because it's like, you know, why not just have this mini movie in the middle? Of yeah, your movie what, at and, one point, at one point, Rob Steiger yells out, "I'm a psychoanalyst. Like, why oh, won't yeah. you listen to me?" Oh, and it's that scene is so overacted. I mean, they're all at like eleven in this, you know, in this scene. <laughs> Uh, and it's it's just off putting, and it is it just goes on and on. And you just like, can we just get back to the the cute? What's Margot? The other doing? priest who kind of becomes his little buddy. Who is, does that actor not look like the actor who was in the X Files episode Irresistible? You know the creepy serial killer guy. Uh, I mean, you mean Nick Chinlin? <laughs> uh, yeah, he's actually on my screen watching right now. That he, he kind of had that vibe. Yeah, he was in the mean, car. Yeah. And so he kind of knows something's up and he kind of tries to help him out. He's also with him during that whole exorcist scene he does in the church whenever he goes blind. I mean, it's just like so much. It's too much. <laughs> <laughs> Forgot about that. Again, I, I feel like I'm I'm not shitting on this movie. I give it, you know, it's a good movie. They're just, it's, these things are charming to me, put it that way. That section of the movie does not work for me at all. It doesn't, it doesn't work for you. At the same time, for some reason, I'm glad it exists. <laughs> Um, but let's go back to our couple. So they're getting situated. There's this great scene, and um, this kind of go back goes back to our theme about how people used to have sex in movies, and now, now they just <laughs> <Right>. don't. <laughs> but well, there's also just, there's always that like consummation scene in the first day they move into the house, the first night. Oh yeah, they get it yeah. on, just like in arachnophobia when they yeah. get it on, and also the spiders get it on, if you recall. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, there's this there's this very sexy scene where you know um, Margot Kidder is in this blouse and she her shirt is just open. And then she's um, wearing just like 
undies and leg warmers, the flower in her hair. She has given herself some self-love. And then yeah. she's like, it's so funny that she's just like dressed like that casually. And he comes in and she gets startled. And it's like, there's not many other people in the house. Like, uh, well, I, I took it like she was, you know, waiting for him. You know, like that's oh. how she, that was her, you know, her come, that was her, you know, her, her outfit for the night. And there's two sex scenes in the movie. I mean, they're not like, explicit or anything, but they're pretty. Yeah, it's a nice you know, 70s sex scene. And then, of course, they're kids. Very tasteful. In. Very tasteful. But yeah. I do love the sex talk. And it, I, I, I took notes on it because it's, so, <laughs> it's just so weird where he says, um, this is very sexy now. I feel like a kid in the backseat of the car. <laughs> so I guess he's never had sex before. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. Like, and then I think she it's says, just like he's excited. Let me he means like a quote. kid like in high school. I feel like a kid in the backseat of the car. Why would that be exciting? I don't know. Um, and then she goes, I want this to work. I want it to be the best. I don't want to have any regrets. <laughs> it's in bed. <laughs> it's just kind of funny. It's just like, you know, very, it's just a very nice, tasteful, candlelit And then a kid scene. walks in and ruins it. Yeah. First big scare of the movie really is the when George is walking around and there's something going on in the boathouse or something. Uh, he goes out to yeah, investigate. Yeah, but this is also important because he gets up at 3.15 a.m. We oh, see the clock yes. because yeah. in the first scene, we learn that the murders happened around 3.15 a.m. So this is why he gets up because he hears whispering. Oh, also, I thought yeah. it was interesting. He goes into Amy's room, who's a little girl, and there's a little raggedy Ann doll sitting on the chair. And Annabelle, the original Annabelle was just a raggedy Ann doll. I don't know if you oh, ever really? looked it up. It's mm. not scary at all. And that's yeah. the doll that Ed and Lorraine Warren oh. investigated. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. And then Church the Cat jumps up and scares George. Speaking of Ed and Lor- Lorraine Warren, if you, you haven't seen The Conjuring Part 2? No. Is that what you said? Earlier? Well, the, Con- the Conjuring Part 2 opens with their or that movie's version of the Amityville Horror. It's kind of fascinating. Oh. So because... At some point, at the minimum, they say they went and investigated this. And so it, it opens up with the, like the prologue to the movie, which has nothing really to do with the rest of the movie. It's just like the prologue is Ed Lorraine walking through the Anvil house and seeing kind of their interpretation of the same events. You see mostly the murders, you know, from this point of view. It's, it's kind of interesting. It's like, you know, this sort of mirror image of the no, they, they investigated the Amityville horror. Oh, I know, but oh, I'm talking okay. about. I saw James Wan, the oh, director okay, of The okay, Conjuring, okay. make a movie that he knows is his own sort of version or mini version of the Anvil Horror. And that, that in itself is kind of interesting. Oh, okay. Let alone the fact that, you know, the people it's based on kind of apparently really, you know, did that. So anyway, so there's this great scene where, not great scene, <laughs> there's a scene where uh, he goes out of the boathouse, he comes back in, and this black cat comes out of nowhere and, and just absolutely scares Chris Doty to death. <laughs> So has very little to do with anything else, but that's sort of the first big scare of the movie. And then it seems like unless you, know, you pretty, think the flies are scary, maybe <laughs> I don't know. It's just weird. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. It's like okay, but you know, well, I, I will say that the get out is is pretty creepy. And this is where we kind of, to me, get into the like the shining territory is when you know George starts going a little bit, a little bit nuts. You know, he, he starts getting kind well, of well. Even moody. that night, that first night, he says he starts to feel kind of cold and. Like, not feel very good. Yeah. And then he yeah. gets right into that chop on wood the next day. Yeah. And Margot Kidder sort of inadvertently sneaks up on him and he kind of becomes threatening to her and reminded me very much of Jack Torrance and especially um, the Jack Torrance in the book where he, it's there's a little bit slower progression versus 
Jack Nichols in the movie where he's just like instantly, you know, <laughs> yeah, crazy. Yeah. Um, but, um, which is interesting because like you said, The Shining had not come out yet. Well, I mean, I guess the book had, but, but if you go back too far, the Amityville book that this is based off predates The Shining book. So it's like That's chicken true. and egg. But I don't um, think George Lutz had uh, a desire to kill his family with an axe. Like that wasn't part of their story. I did have this funny thing in my nose. I just thought it was funny and I rewatched it. But when Margot Kidder walks in with the groceries <laughs> and drops them, you know, after after he threat, none of the items in the grocery bag look at all recognizable as groceries. Like there's like, there's like these weird Lego shapes. I, <laughs> I would love to know what whatever the props are in that bag, the, the movie props. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I'm sure there's like a giant baguette or something. <laughs> but I have to look just, at that just, again. I didn't know they had like, funny. they had very sparse <laughs> things in the cabinet. They had like yeah. a thing of Quaker Oats, thing of Clorox yeah. bleach. But yeah, that's funny. I'll have to look at that. And then after she goes into the kitchen, they're just like piling more on. She smells bad smells in the house. Then her little girl, Amy, scares the shit out of her. And Amy tells her about her imaginary friend, Jody. And it's like, do we need all of this? <laughs> yeah, and I was unclear. Well, is Jody one of the names of the kids no. that got murdered? Just a thing. <laughs> I mean, I guess they don't say the names of the kids in the movie, right? Uh, but you're saying that the real people are not. None of the real people are named Jody, but it could be that in yeah. the movie. Yeah. Well, I mean, the sort of story of the haunting the house is a bit unclear to me. I know they say at the end that it's like, oh, it used to be owned by this guy and he was maybe a Satanist or something. And, but that's about it. But it's like, well, where, who's Jody? Like, I don't know. And, you know, the first conjuring takes a lot from this, you know, cause there's a lot, you know, they go down the basement. That's where a lot of the, kind yeah. of, well, I guess it's not that unusual, but Aunt Helena comes to visit. Who is She's a nun. Margot Kidder's aunt. She's also a nun. I mean, Kathy does have a aunt that is a nun. And allegedly, the aunt did come to the house and feel sick and leave. But I don't know if that was corroborated by the nun or if it just like maybe there was something in the house that was, you know, maybe there was some kind of toxin in the house that did smell. Maybe that's what made the nun sick. That's the best throw up scene. So the <laughs> yeah. nun comes in. <laughs> she gets she starts to feel sick. sick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she, and then she opens the door and there's like the best sound. Blah! <laughs> Of her throwing up. It's very good. There's also the funny scene where she meets the kids and she just starts laughing like a maniac. Um, she's a little <laughs> she's a little weird, but Does, don't they show her at one point like playing basketball? Did I, I make that up. Is there nuns there, playing basketball? There's a nun playing basketball because I, I remember like I think it showed up on the some trivia pages, only movie that has a nun playing basketball or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So then Kathy's brother Jimmy is getting married. Well, hold on, there's another there's another sex scene though. And this time, oh, that's right. This time, and this time, it doesn't go he so well. He can't perform. Well, it doesn't go well for him, but she still lights a cigarette. Yeah, so I, I don't know I, if I she's saying no. Like, what happened? I guess he did. He just decide, well, you know, is she like, well, I'm not worried about you. And like, maybe she grabbed his head. And <laughs> I mean, Margaret Kidder, but, but yeah, she, that is kind of funny because she seems completely unconcerned and he's having this complete crisis. But, but you know, I guess the point is that George is getting. Just more and more, you know, whatever the house is, is affecting him. He's, you know, he looks like shit. He's, I mean, he still looks pretty good, actually. But, you know, he's only sweaty. He looks tired. He's not able to. He does end up looking pretty bad, though, for someone so good looking. Yeah, they do. They did a pretty good job, like, making him look tired and his eyes red. Can I have a similar vibe since we just did the thing? Is there any, like, competition between Kurt Russell and James Brolin? Like, if you... Like for me, no. It's like Kurt, Kurt Russell. Yeah, Kurt Russell. But, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, uh, James Brolin is awesome, but uh, when I think of James Brolin, I think of him now, uh, and he's just like unrecognized. Yeah. And not that he's like unattractive or anything, but I just 
that's just my association with him, which is why when I look at this, I think that's Chris Christopherson. I don't know why. <laughs> they don't, he doesn't really <laughs> even look like him. I just, okay, yeah. So let's get to the, the wedding thing because this is pretty funny. All right. So Kathy's brother, Jimmy, is getting married and the ghost steals his money. And, and the screenwriters are like, oh, well, that's kind of weird. But I guess this is a weird thing ghosts do. And it's like, no, I just stole my shit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, we're, so anyway, yeah, we have this wedding scene and it, it leads to yet more tension between George and um, Kathy. But at the same time, we have um, – there's a pretty cool scene where the, the the daughter is at home with the babysitter who has this ridiculous oh headgear on. Oh, my gosh. That poor headgear. Can you believe kids had to go around like that? Well, at what point did that end, do you think? Because I know that was, I think, at least the 80s. and Definitely through the 80s. Just amazing. I don't remember. I, I mean, I think I just kind of know it from movies. But... I do remember having a friend who, like, wore it at night. And she put it on to go to bed, which seems very uncomfortable. It just looks but like I feel a torture so bad device. For that girl. Yeah, <laughs> I would just not do that. But but there's this pretty cool scene where um, you know the young daughter locks the headgear babysitter as a, in the closet, <laughs> or the ghost does, I guess. Jody the ghost. Jody the ghost, and she can't get out, and she really freaks out. She freaks out immediately, and her like her knuckles are bloody within like thirty seconds. Oh yeah. Uh, and this is where, you know, it comes out again. She says she just wants to play with Jody. Jo- Jody won't let her open the door. But what's interesting to me is they kind of use that to cause yet another rift between George and Kathy. Because, you know, it sort of goes into the like where George takes what happened there and erupts on Kathy saying, your kids don't have any discipline. You need to get them a line. I can't handle this. Yeah, but I did like that scene when he yells at her and then the little girl says something. George is mad at me. And she was like, well, yeah. You shouldn't have locked the door. Like, I thought they handled it well as a parenting moment. Yeah. Also reminded me of the scene in Bly Manor, you know, when they lock the au pair, they lock Victoria Peretti into the closet. And she freaks out, too. So I guess it must be something that is very. Yeah. It also seemed really kind of realistic. Not not the supernatural part of it, but just how the parents would react. Like, they would just be mad. You know, they wouldn't like, you know, no, no version of what the girl was telling them would would um account for that it's like no just don't fucking do that <laughs> i don't care if jody's telling you amy makes a little comment of jody doesn't like george so is there some way is this jody also involved in uh controlling george or making him feel like shit i don't know it's, yeah it's it seems kind like of jody odd. would like george because they want to control him right i don't know then we have the priest meeting scene so that's like half an hour but so we can go past that. Oh, so then george's co-worker shows i up. was gonna say the same thing i was gonna call him his business okay. partner then. And so he uh, has a small business. I guess he's a surveyor because he also goes later to go get the blueprints of the house. And his wife instantly gets freaked out and will not go into the house, sits in the car. But George can't stop sharpening his axe anyway. He's still out there chopping wood. And the business partner says that we need someone to sign the checks. Like, I don't, can't he just bring them the checks? I don't know. And I guess the business is kind of going downhill because George has just can't stop chopping wood. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's an interesting development to introduce, you know, three-fourths of the way in the movie. <laughs> yeah, and I honestly thought that that would be the last we see of them. But it's kind of interesting that later they come back and actually, like, the wife is actually very helpful in this situation. She has a lot of answers. And while they're there, the kids are playing. And this, this is when the window still falls in the boy's hand, right? Yeah, and that's when the score erupts yeah. in psycho-type music. Because right. <laughs> <laughs> that's the scary thing, maybe, is the window still on the head. Well, that was kind of an odd thing, too, because did they say... He didn't break any bones in his hands. Like, that's so wa- weird. How did he not break any bones? And it's like, why is that another thing that the ghost does? The ghost slams things on your hands, but your bones don't break? 
I didn't quite understand yeah, what the I point of that was. I would just assume that it wouldn't break your hand, but I mean, I mean, <laughs> I know. I, it would hurt, but I mean, you're. And then I have a very restless night after that. There's uh, flies again and the front door gets blown off. And I like that scene when George tells Kathy to wait upstairs and she says, like hell, little Margot Kidder. He's also walking around in his white tighties. I don't know if you noticed that. Oh my gosh, <laughs> yes. He's got his package on full display. Yeah. I will never understand the white tidy phenomenon. I just, <laughs> I guess you didn't have a lot of options back then. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I feel like it's a thing for for little boys. I don't understand why grown men wear them. I just, I just don't. <laughs> it's weird. I, I could be convinced, I guess, but they do call the police and have the police come out and kind of report what happened. I don't really know what the police could do. But they do mention the fact that the door is blown off from the inside. Yeah. Um, this is the first time they do report some weird things yeah. going on. And I think the cop even kind of remarks that George looks like the guy that used to live there. And that's where the first time that comes yeah, up. That, yeah, that was a plot point in this in the movie where he looks just like the murderer, which is kind of... Right. Okay. Because the cop mentions it and the bartender later mentions it. I mean, I know this sounds ridiculous, but was that all at all a thing in real life? I mean... <laughs> No. He wasn't reincarnated no. from the... Okay. <laughs> no. Okay, so, so then George starts doing his own investigating. Yeah. He goes and gets the the blueprints of the house. He sees that there's like an extra room on there. He goes to the library and for some reason steals the library <laughs> book. The same note, yeah. <laughs> he stuck it down his whitey tidies. Like he doesn't know how libraries work. It's like you can just rent, <laughs> you can just rent that. You, know, you, you can take it home. It's fine. He didn't have a library card. It's fine. I was also thinking like maybe this is like the evil in him. Like this is what he thinks is being evil. <laughs> He's going to steal he the library book. Maybe he because it's about, you know, you know, evil stuff. What was the book about? I forget. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know, yeah. be a cold like, or, or something. I think there's a picture. Of the book specifically about his house, <laughs> like why it's haunted. <laughs> so that is useful information. Yeah. But that's interesting too. In real life, apparently George Lutz was kind of obsessed with the occult, and he was already into this stuff before he came up with the whole story. And like his stepkids talk about it, and they kind of said like he always just wanted to be a showman. He wanted to be in the limelight, and that that also kind of leans into why he made up the story too. So I think I had it wrong earlier. So this is where this comes up. I have a quote in my little notes here, but when George and his buddy are at the bar and they're talking about how George's life is terrible because he has this awful wife <laughs> and adorable children and immediately haunted house. But what the business partner says is you marry a dame with three kids. In this case, like what year are we in? But he says, you marry a dame with her kids and he says, you change your religion. You're not the same. So that's where that comes oh, from. It's not okay, something It's okay. not something George is complaining about. That's, that's, so I guess he did convert to Catholicism. Once George starts kind of realizing what's going on, I do think that the tension and the, and the scares do kind of escalate kind of nicely. You know, kind of, I like the slow sort of deliberate pace of it. You know, the, 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 the scares kind of build and build until... The goo that comes out of the toilet. And then she sees eyes in the window that's pretty scary and while this is going on they see that the house was owned by a guy named ketchup who was ketchum. a witch yeah devil worship and general witchery yeah run out of salem and he worshiped the devil on the ground uh but then also then they talk later about how a tribe of indians calls the called the shinnecocks used the land as like almost like a jail i wasn't really sure there was just too much information oh, part, going yeah. on <laughs> And then also that when they finally 
break the hole in the wall and Margot Kidder comes down like, what are you guys doing? Like they just came back from the bar. She thought that they were just like trashed. <laughs> Their black lab has been scratching there so yeah. much so that his his paws are bloody, which is very sad. But why is the dog attached to the evil? Why does I don't. Well, I just I, I kind of read it as he's more distressed and he's just sort of trying to get at whatever it is as. And bothering him, but I don't know, it's a dog. Oh, yeah, that's true. I felt bad for the guy. But he's the hero of the movie. We'll get to that. He saves the day. Oh, yeah, the dog. The dog. That's a good dog. But, yeah, so they, they, you know, they're all in the basement. It's George, the business partner, the business partner's wife. Margaret Kidder's around somewhere in the dog. And they all knock down the wall. There's this weird red room inside the wall. The business partner's wife hopefully says that it's a passage to oh, hell. Her, her name was Carolyn, apparently. Carolyn, yeah. She says, this is a passage to hell. And she says right. it in a like kind of a demonic voice, so that's that's pretty alarming. Well, no, you see that she's she's possessed by the priest. Oh, okay. And so he's telling, he's talking through her and telling them they need to cover the well because it's a passage to hell. Okay. And then they try to bless the house with the cross. The detective is outside watching the house. Oh yeah, and this is this is where the father Delaney goes blind. Yeah. See, Chris, there's too much happening. There's a lot going on. Yeah. Because also, then Kathy looks in the mirror and she looks like an old lady. Yeah. Which all of this stuff she did say actually happened. There, she looked in the mirror and she was old. They levitated off their beds. All kinds of shit. Yeah. I do like like if this is true, you know, I, I like that either these ghosts are just working overtime. They're like blind, <laughs> old. Red room, like they're pressing all these buttons, and like they're like just yeah. you know, they're like just having the time of their life. Like, get that fucking dog, get him involved. Like, <laughs> they are out of control. Yeah. Close the window yeah. on the kid because <laughs> they were playing it cool first, and they they just got so excited on whatever this night happened, and they're just going all full tilt. Uh, Kathy has a scary dream though, where she sees that, George. Yeah, that is scary with the axe with the little girl and then she wakes up so i don't know if that was kathy just like already feeling that she could tell this was going to happen because george was acting so weird or is that another ghost in the house trying to warn her i don't know a lot going on yeah and there's also a cool scene where uh, kathy goes and does some research on her own and pulls out a microfiche machine which is and always did you notice who works in the newspaper office no who bennings from the thing really no, that's cool. Yeah, remember the red hair guy whose arms yeah. turn into that was him. Yeah, oh, yeah. that's kind of cool. So this is this is before the thing, right? Yeah. So she's at the you know library looking at the history of the house. You know, although he already had a book about it, so I'm not sure why. <laughs> um, and he's at home, you know, sharpening his axe. And then you have sort of the last night scene, which is you know kind of a classic. You you know you have these last night scenes in all these movies. It's kind of like the last night in Polish guys. Last night, of course, in the Conjuring and. Um, and last night in the haunting of Hill House. Yeah, yeah, and they even called which I thought it the last was very night. similar. Yeah, yeah. because oh. they also had four kids, and they did all get out of the house and get into the car and drive away. Also, like you were talking about Jordan Peele, like Mike Flanagan also has a lot of influences, and he really loves horror. Yeah, so that that could very well be him riffing off of Amityville. So I don't know. There's not much to say about last night except for a bunch of crazy shit. <laughs> I mean, like uh, you know, the walls start dripping blood. George is crazy. The one thing that I think is missing is like, like unlike the shining, like I feel like there's, I feel like they're developing this theme of like, he's like, you know, and I, which I assume we're going to talk about, I mean, you know, the, the family destroyer, right? Is that, is that the word? The family. Annihilator. An Annihilator. Scarier. That's scary. Yeah. The story is pretty scary. Yeah. That's definitely there, but you don't really get a sense. Like maybe I missed it, but you don't really get a sense of the kids 
or even Margaret Kidder are particularly afraid of him. They they seem to all blame it on the house and the supernatural. Yes, and, th- and this is one of the reasons why I can't really enjoy this movie because when we t- get to the real story, I mean, at one point they do say, oh, the reason that Ron DeFeo, who was the original murderer, did this is because the house made him do it. Yeah. And that's such bullshit. And so it makes me really upset that they were trying to make it seem like this man who was just distraught and fucked up did this these terrible things because the house told him to do it. And then that's just been put in movie after movie after movie, perpetually saying the same thing, that it's not his fault. And that's what they're kind of showing with the James Brolin character. Like, it's not his fault that he's going to murder his whole family. Someone's telling him to do it when really these men do this all the time and it's their own faults. There's no. Yeah. And so I guess that's where I thought there's a bit of a missed opportunity because you, you could have, I feel like they could have reaped much more drama out of the last act of the movie, Mr. Film Critic here, if they had the kids <laughs> and Margaret Kidder being more actively scared of him, like in addition to the house. Yeah, like in The Shining. Yeah. And that's, that's the difference. Like The Shining, because The Shining is like a metaphor. Like it's about. You know, Stephen King going crazy at a hotel and worried that he's going to go so crazy he's going to hurt his family. That's like the, that's the genesis of that book. And that's why right. all that permeates the book and, of course, the movie. And it's, you know, you take out the, all the supernatural stuff and you you still have the kernel of the same story. The family being afraid, particularly a kid being afraid that his dad's going to hurt him. That's what the story is. And, I mean, there's a ton of other examples. Like, I was just watching, you know, the, the modern classic is Sidious Part 2 with Patrick Wilson. And they have, like, the <laughs> a very similar dynamic. It's a, actually a pretty weird movie, but there's a pretty extended sequence where Patrick Wilson, I got very upset, but he turns kind of evil, Kristen. And he, oh, no. And he goes after, uh, but don't worry, it's not really him, but he goes after the, um, what's her, uh, Rose Byrne. And even though you you learn and you kind of know, well, it's not really him. It's like the the supernatural, whatever. She plays it like it's her husband, you know, and and she plays it that way. And that's what the scene is kind of about domestic violence. Not that you should ever really want to watch that, but that's what the horror is. And so I felt like it was kind of weird that they spend three fourths of the movie developing him as this sort of not evil, but you know, possibly bordering on you know violent, maybe abusive. Something's going to wrong with him. And the other characters don't react to him that way. They react to just the... No. Yeah. yeah. So in, in more skilled hands, this could be a really good metaphor for domestic violence. And also what happens in these stories where the man makes a decision for the entire family that he's going to end all of their lives. So that could be a really great movie. But like, yeah, like you said, like there's never any fear. He's kind of mean to them sometimes. Yeah, and I feel like Mario Kidder kind of apologizes for him almost, you know. And maybe yeah. that's just a symptom of the times. That's true. Although The Shining was the same time and got, you know, obviously went a different route altogether. Well, yeah, I mean, even at the end, we haven't gotten to the final part where George, well, yeah, like you said, he's evil for like a split second and then he changes his mind because he runs back into the house to even get the dog. Like he was, he save the dog, he was just yeah. about to kill his whole family with an axe, but then he decides to go back and get the dog and he falls into almost like a big pool of blood, which is almost like the descent. But then the dog saves him and pulls him out, which is that's a very kind of almost like a Spielberg type thing. Because I think the rest of this movie does have a little more edge to like like the Poltergeist movie. Yeah, well, it remind me very much of the ending of Poltergeist, which again it came later, right? Yeah, yeah. Poltergeist was later. It's very similar. Um, just the family escaping this house, and again, all of these things were sort of like 
not criticizing, but pointing out or, or not. It's just, it's kind of me talking about this, you know, 40 years later from a slightly more modern view with the hindsight of, you know, 40 more years of horror movies and an early template for, for what came later and did things better. So I'm not really saying it's necessarily bad. It just interested to me that they had all these sort of puzzle pieces in right there and they just didn't kind of quite put them together in a way that you'd think would be more obvious. <laughs> Or maybe it's just a bad screenwriter. I don't know, but uh, that could be it. I still, again, I'm not knocking the movie. I, I think it's a solid three and a half stars, you know, as I put on Letterboxd. Um, that can go up or down any given day. I do want to see at least one or two of the sequels. I, I saw there's an Amityville 3D that piqued my interest. <laughs> okay. okay, one more thing about the movie. I thought it was also interesting that they stayed in the house for 28 days. And then for some reason... Ed and Lorraine Warren say that it takes 28 days to get rid of a ghost. Also, there's the movie 28 Days Later. Is there a, a reason why that number 28 is used? Is that the lunar cycle? When you said 20 days later, you don't mean the Century Bullet movie, do you? <laughs> that's 28 Days, and that's a great movie, okay. too. Yeah, that's the lunar cycle. Everything comes back to the I'm moon. so smart. The tides, women's periods, and getting rid of ghosts. Uh, I do love the abrupt ending of the movie. Like they all just get into the car and then they just drive off and then it just kind of ends. Yeah. All right. So I'm not completely sold on the movie because, again, well, I'm going to tell you about the true all, crime you know, is based on. We have to on. separate the art from the artist. <laughs> or the <line. laughs> So as a movie, without all the – I mean, I know you're about to get into the true crime stuff, but without all the – what you know about what really happened – like, how do you think it works as just a movie? Like, a, like just not knowing any of the real story. Still think it's too much. They need to tone it down with all the different things. But I think that Margot it's Kidder. Like, hey, ghost, calm down. Right? <laughs> That's what you're saying, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think Margot Kidder and James Brolin are a unique couple for like a horror movie. Like, they're not just a boring couple that's moving into a new house and things happen to them. Like, they're so likable. They're written really well. And so I think they kind of save the movie. They make it more interesting. I do love that it's the 70s type style. The kids are good. So, yeah, the kids aren't really characters, which is fine. So, I mean, I think I'd give us all three stars if it weren't for all my baggage. <laughs> yeah, I think I think my half extra star on that is because of just generally knowing how influential it was and probably some of my criticisms being a little bit late in the game and not kind of maybe... You know, giving it its due for what it was in its time, you know? Also, Margot Kidder's pigtails. Yeah. Well, and the open blouse. I mean, like, yeah. like I mean, I would go straight for that. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the leg warmers. That yeah. was enough. I'll give it another quarter of a star. She was just so charming in this whole movie. Like, just, you know, no notes. Just, you know. Is there a true crime you can think of for this movie? <laughs> I mean, if there's any more information that I haven't already mentioned. I mean, so the original murder happened. On, there's actually Annieville scholars outside my house with pitchforks. <laughs> oh, no. So just before you continue. Don't let them in. Yeah, okay. The 2005 Amityville Horror started playing. They did say like Ron DeFeo used his name. I don't believe they did that in this one. Did they? No, I, I think that's what confused me. I think that's the name they changed. So they didn't change the, the family that moved in. They changed the name of the original killer. Well, so Ron DeFeo Jr. was 24 years old when he murdered his entire family. He murdered his parents and his four siblings with a rifle. And I re-listened to a podcast that I'd heard before called Very Scary People 
hosted by Donnie Wahlberg. It's actually a very good podcast. It's also a TV show. And they just finally released a new podcast series. They're doing the Ken and Barbie killers. They're very well done. And Donnie Wahlberg is a great host. And he's very funny at the beginning because he's like, yeah, that's me from New Kids on the Block. You know, he does talk about that. So after the murders, Ron, he like showed up at some place and said, I think my family's been murdered. And at first it seemed like he maybe wasn't involved, but then he got arrested. And then he first denied and said that it was because of the mob. He then said he did do it. And his quote was, once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. Then he also went back and forth on this. And over the years, he said that his sister, Alice, who was 18, and him decided to kill their parents together. I read that, yeah. Which pisses me off so much because I'm a, I have a few other examples of family annihilators who do this shit. They try to get seem like they weren't responsible and they were just avenging or whatever. So he says that Alice was the one who killed the kids and then he accidentally killed her. He also at one point said that his mom killed the dad and then he accidentally killed the mom it's just like it's just going back and forth and well let me ask this is this one of the only or rare examples of, of a family knowledge that's not the father yes that is very interesting because yeah it usually is the father and so this the older brother which is interesting because you would think that he has the option of leaving right because a, a lot of the problem that happens with this is because it's the dad who is having financial issues or he's having an affair and he's married and he feels trapped. He has a mortgage. They do talk a lot about Ron DeFeo, the dad, who was apparently a really bad guy. He's kind of like Tony Soprano, but extra mean. He's a mobster? Apparently had ties to the mob, but he also was just a very abusive, violent man. And as Ron Jr., or they call him Butch, that was his nickname, he was the oldest. He took the brunt of most of it. He would also take the violence that was going to be inflicted on his younger siblings. So we don't know. Obviously, this affected him emotionally. There also could have been, I mean, who knows if there was brain damage, if there was a head injury, which is also a big cause of why people go on to become murderers. He also used drugs like LSD, heroin. He Mm -hmm. drank all the time. I mean, he drank like a, a fifth of vodka or whiskey every day. Seems like there's several contributing factors here. Yeah. And so obviously none of it excuses what he did. Came into the house at three in the morning and shot each kid and his parents in their bed. Later, people start to say like, oh, it, what? maybe he was possessed because how else would the family not wake up when they heard the other gunshots? That's the big thing that I always kept coming across. Apparently they weren't drugged. He didn't use a silencer. But in one of his accounts, he did say that at one point, one of the kids did get up because he heard something, but he told him to go back to bed and go back into his room. Also, if you know that quote I said earlier, he said it went so fast. So I think it was, it just happened really fast. And also my fire alarm, my smoke alarm went off the other night. It was the loudest thing I've ever heard in my life. My kids did not budge. And it's right outside both of their rooms. Anyway, I don't think the devil had anything to do with it. One of the other interesting things about the case is one of the reasons that the jurors finally decided to convict him of being guilty was because of their dog. I thought was interesting at the end of the movie. The dog is kind of very pivotal to the end because when they found the bodies, the dog was tied up outside and apparently it was known that the dog hated Ron Jr. So he would have tied the dog up because he wouldn't have wanted him in the house. Yeah. I mean, that sounds awful, but why wouldn't he just kill the dog? I mean, like kill the family. I was wondering that too, but I guess the rage wasn't 
I don't know. And so he was found guilty and he was he was given life. And then so what happened is just like in the movie, about a year later, George and Kathy Lutz move in. They live there for the 28 days and they say that all these things are happening. Yeah. So this is what I'm interested in. I mean, not to diminish what you just said. I was interested in that too. But like, but so how this become a thing? I mean, you, you, I mean, I know it became a book and I know the Warrens became involved, but I, I mean, I'm, I, I've come to this so late that I don't quite understand. Like, when did this become a phenomenon? Like, cause it was a phenomenon even before the movie. Like, the movie was popular to some extent because it was already sort of a thing, right? Yeah. So like I had said, George Lutz had always been interested in the occult. And I think the one of the things that really stood out was when his, stepson said something about how he loved being a showman and he wanted to just exploit something and become famous almost and so because he was already into the occult i guess this is kind of where it went and then years later ron defeo's attorney william weber came out and said that him and the couple made the whole story up after they got really drunk on like a bunch of bottles of wine and because it was going to benefit William Weber because he could use that in Ron DeFeo's case. And then it would also benefit the Lutzes because they would get money. So it all makes sense. And then so then they corroborated with Jay Anson, who wrote the novel, The Amityville Horror. So when that book came out, it became a huge bestseller, especially around that time, too. I think it came out in 77, maybe. I mean, peak of like a lot of horror coming out and especially in the 70s people started to get really interested in this kind of stuff. And then Ed and Lorraine Warren became involved and they came in and they claimed that they felt presence and, and all that shit. And that's why I just really can't endorse them. I think they're portrayed very well in the movies, but I think they're portrayed too well. They're, they're portrayed as though everything they said was gospel. And I think that's bullshit. I think they were con artists. Maybe they believed it. Maybe they were so delusional that they did believe in everything that they say they encountered. I don't know, but I just don't really believe it. So then the book comes out and then it gets optioned off for a movie and then it just takes off from there. And so like I said earlier, it just kind of is upsetting to me because then everyone is assuming that this is true. Because also, I think it was in the nonfiction bestsellers. <laughs> really? So that also people... Yeah, that just matters because that's probably how it was marketed. You know? But people believed it was true. Yeah. So they're also going to believe that Ron DeFeo was affected by something in the house, and that's not his fault. Now, Ron DeFeo went back and forth. Like I said, he made up a million different things. Up until his death, he said, no, it's a lie. It's a hoax. And he finally admitted that it was just him. George Lutz, up until his death, said it was true. So let me get this straight. George Lutz and his wife met with the attorney for DeFeo? Yeah. Like yeah. just some, at some point after they moved in his house and just sort of concocted this whole story? That's according to William Weber, Ron DeFeo's attorney, right? Okay. Attorney. That is insane. I mean, I mean, in a way, it's kind of, I suppose, genius, but I mean, but that level of, uh, you know, duplicity is pretty fucked up. Oh, so I'll tell, tell you about a few more family annihilators, you know, just for fun. There's so many. Of course, you, if you watch the documentary American Murder Next Door about Christopher Watts that came out in 2018. That's one of the most horrific ones and the most recent ones that was at least nationally publicized. And that's another one where he said that he came home and his wife had killed their children. So he killed her. And that was all false. Obviously, he killed everybody, including their unborn son. And I hate him so much. But one of the most famous ones, and I just listened to a podcast about this right now, and it's called Father Wants Us Dead. <laughs> and it's uh, the story of John List, who in 1971 
murdered his entire family, including his mother. So that's a good podcast to listen to. They actually interview people who investigated the case, people who lived in the neighborhood, who lived next door. That's one of the most disturbing stories I've ever heard. One of the first true crime stories I ever heard, because I remember like really bothering me. I remember going to my husband and being like, look, if you ever have like money issues or if you get fired from your job or if you have feelings for someone else, can you not like murder us? And he was just like, what are you talking about? And I was just like, look, I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page here because it's so many of these killers who either they lose their money, they lose their jobs or they're having an affair. I mean, kind of like, I mean, Lacey and Scott Peterson, he was also having an affair, which I did not realize how much Gone Girl, the movie by David Fincher, the book by Jillian Flynn, is based on the Scott Peterson and Lacey Peterson case. No way, really? I didn't know that. It is fascinating. I've always known about that case. Scott Peterson was married to Lacey. She was very pregnant and she just appeared on Christmas Eve. And he, she was later found washed up. And actually, uh, Paul Holes, who helped solve the Golden State Killer, actually worked on that case, too. Very sad case. Scott Peterson was convicted. He still says he's innocent. He's the one that was sort of um, popularized by like People Magazine and yes. you know, had a kind of a fan base when he was in jail. People like writing to him because he's kind of handsome. Is that the guy? Yeah. Yes, but it's so similar to Gone Girl. Like She obviously was very inspired by that because he has a mistress, we found out later, and very like similar details like um, in Gone Girl when Ben Affleck takes a phone call at his wife's vigil to his mistress. Scott Peterson did that. He took a phone call from his mistress during the vigil of his wife and lied and said that he was in Paris. I knew none of this. Yeah. That's why it's so great because it's a great twist on this whole classic story of the the woman who's who's always murdered. And I won't tell the whole story about the John List murders. I mean, they are pretty fascinating because his family wasn't found for a month. They were in the house dead. And then he disappeared for like 18 years or something. And he wasn't found until an episode of America's Most Wanted. It's, so it's pretty crazy. And he died in prison. Also, recently on that show, The Watcher, I don't know if you watched it. Did I with watch him. The Watcher? No. <laughs> yeah. With Bobby Cannavale. And it was fine. It was okay. It was also based on one of those creepy houses up in New England. It was the one where the people moved in. They started getting the letters that were from The Watcher. If you know that true story that happened, nothing actually ever happened. But then they've made a whole series on if it was more. But there's an episode where John List shows up as like a ghost and he comes into the house and he makes a sandwich because that's what John List did in between killing his mother and his wife while he was waiting for his kids to come home. He made a sandwich. Well, no, I was just going to say another really interesting one is Christian Longo, who James Franco played in a movie called True Story. So apparently this guy killed his wife and three kids in Oregon. Then he fled to Mexico and tell every told everyone that his name was Mike Finkel, who was a real journalist at the New York Times. And then somehow him and Finkel like met up. And so it's the story of James Franco and Jonah Hill are the serial killer and the journalist. I can't believe I'd never heard of that. I've never heard of this movie. But is there like a common denominator to all these things? I mean, are you, are you saying it's really just normal everyday pressures like money and family stress? Or is there something more? I mean, do you have to be a sociopath to do this type of thing? I, mean, I suppose you do. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, so they said the profile 
is usually a middle-aged man. He's highly educated. He feels like he is the typical man of the house. He has to take care of everyone he has to provide. He probably has depression, psychological problems. There was a study in 2009 that said 68% of those who killed their family had a history of depression. 38% showed borderline personality disorder. That's from crimetraveler.org. And so there is definitely a profile for these men. It all, some of it does stem from childhood trauma. And I think it just compounds. And also, it definitely has to do with being a sociopath and not being able to understand why your family wouldn't want to live. Another kind of beef I have is with Shutter Island. I do love that movie. I love the book. But this is a spoiler for Shutter Island. If you haven't seen that, you know, you can skip forward or turn it <laughs> off. But so in the movie, it's found out that Leonardo DiCaprio is in a mental institution because his wife killed her children and then he kills his wife, right? But what did I just give you like three examples of? A man who kills his entire family. And blames on the says, wife, yeah. Yes. So I'm saying this is a book written by a man. It's a screenplay written by a man, directed by a man. And this is what the story that they tell. And 98% of family annihilators are men. So there are a few cases of women and those those cases are high profile because it is so much more hard for us to understand a woman doing it. So there's Andrea Yates who drowned all of her children, probably what Shutter Island is based on. But that's like one major example. And she was suffering from severe postpartum psychosis. Well, this also actually leads me to a, an alternative interpretation of Shutter Island where it really is Leo that does all this. That's how I feel. But I think that Dennis Lehane wouldn't say that. I think that he's probably basing it on someone like Andrea Yates. But Marty Because might. that is more <laughs> shocking, right? Yeah. But Marty Scorsese may... Maybe and I need to watch that because maybe it's like, you know, a triple layer thing where it's, you know, you're looking at, of course, the surface level stuff where you don't know there's even twists at all to where then you get Leonardo DiCaprio's version where it's his wife. And but maybe there's a third version where it's Leo and we're looking at Leo sort of justifying what he did. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, I do like that. Actually, it's 91 percent of the yeah. time. Still pretty high, I would say. <laughs> That's pretty high. <laughs> but also, I think like the women that are the main examples, it is often like postpartum psychosis where they, they really are suffering from mental disorder, where a lot of the men either escape like John List or continue to deny that they don't know where their family is, like Christopher Watts, and try to move on with their life. So I don't know. It's still no. awful. Don't kill your family. Don't do yeah, that. We don't recommend that. <laughs> yeah. So that's just um, my ranting about family annihilators and how it kind of, you know, poisons this movie for me because I don't want to give any excuse for Ron DeFeo Jr. and for what he did. And it's just become this lore of like the house made me do it. Well, do you have any sense that, you know, the general audience for this movie or even people later believe? that i mean like at that time i'm sure they still believed really? it because okay. oh for sure because that book was super popular and like this is you know the movie i mean with rosemary's baby and the exorcist and yeah. especially with i think with them having the catholic uh, visuals in there having a priest involved i think that makes people much more likely to believe that it's the devil because that's something that's that true, people yeah. can understand and that's why it's if you're saying it's an indian burial ground which is still Wrong. I completely missed that, by the way. But there is a fascinating thing about like movies like The Exorcist, for instance, where you think that would be because it's so blasphemous, you know, literally, you know, <laughs> think of all the things that Reagan says in that movie, you know, all the instantly quotable things that I just don't want to 
bring myself to say that you think it would upset you know many you know Christians, but they it's actually inverse because it's a movie that takes their faith seriously. Right. Oh, Isn't that yeah. Fascinating. That is and fascinating. So maybe there's a little bit of that to it because like they're willing to excuse um, some of the more silly aspects of these things and because it's where it takes this idea that, well, hey, there's even like a life after death. And to once to do that, you have to assume there's supernatural or anything. Then you kind of get to God and. But like a movie like The Exorcist, which you think like, and, and I know we're talking about The Exorcist, but we will at some point need to. But, you know, you're, and my initial instinct is like, that must be so offensive to people. And I'm sure, yeah, most people, some people, yes, but it, it's not offensive on that level because it reinforces people's faith because it's a movie that takes faith that seriously. That makes so much sense. I mean, I can see how it's more scary to people who are yeah. very religious because they feel like that does happen and people yeah, so are you, possessed. You think Reagan's saying like, lick me, like whatever she says. And like, and you think, Oh God, that's terrible. But you could all see it. It's like, yeah, that is something the devil would say. <laughs> and with the horror, two thumbs up. <laughs> what do we give this? Like <laughs> how many, um, broken windows on the, I don't know. What, what's our metaphor this time? Uh, how many flies? How many flies? Uh, <laughs> How many angry priest fights? <laughs> I don't know. How many Margot Kidder pigtails? Oh, goodness. Yeah, that, that'd be much sexier. I mean, <laughs> and, yeah, that, this is probably one of our more critical episodes, you know, for those that count and that the, those that care. That said, you know, we're not here to knock this movie. It's, you know, that's not what this podcast is about. We, we chose it because it's worth talking about. So take that for what it's worth. That is true. We have chosen movies that usually at the end we're like, God, this movie just rocks five stars. And so we are doing one that's maybe not our favorite. And I think that's still good to do and talk about. And we talked about the influences. That said, you know, you know, it was a good time. Glad I saw it. I mean, it was one of those things I'd never seen. It's like, oh, now I've seen it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like if you're having a Halloween party, I mean, this would definitely be something to put on. I think it's very enjoyable. But if you're watching it, critically it right. kind of falls short yeah thanks for listening um watch or don't watch any real horror but if you're listening <laughs> to this you probably already have follow us on tiktok at sometimes dead d-e-d follow us on instagram at sometimes dead podcast and rate and review and stuff do people still do that i think you're supposed to yeah that would be great also if there's something we're missing about this movie and again i like it but if there's something that you know that just tell us you know that's fine don't be mean but let us know. Yeah, what is we're it? very what sensitive. We're yeah, very if you're, if you're a huge fan of this movie, you know, make your case because you know it, it, that could be kind of cool to hear too. And maybe yeah, we'll. I um, love that. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening. Good night. Good night, everybody. <laughs>